Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And this morning we will be considering together verse 17, the second half of that verse. Ephesians 6, verse 17. But let me begin reading in verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Would you please join me as we pray for the Lord's help? Lord, we need you. We need you to be our teacher. We need you, Father, to guide us into all the truth through the ministry of the Spirit. And Father, may the sword of the Spirit be used this morning to accomplish all your purposes in us. And these things we pray in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Well, we are almost to the end of this section on spiritual warfare. And I say almost because uh, we cannot have a proper discussion on spiritual warfare without addressing the issue of prayer. But we will save that for next Sunday. This morning, we have landed on the sixth piece of the armor of God, namely the sword of the spirit. And I think it would be fair to say that this might be the easiest to understand in one sense, and yet the hardest to implement in another sense. By saying that it might be the easiest to understand, I mean that the Apostle Paul explicitly defined what the sword of the Spirit is. There's no question about that. The sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. On the other hand, however, I say that this might just be the hardest to implement in practice because once you understand what it means, it will take much, much of you. In order to explain these divinely inspired and utterly important and powerful words from the pen of the Apostle Paul, I will highlight three simple points that we see in this verse. And by simple, I don't mean unimportant. Rather, I mean straightforward and Very, very clear. Now, before I give you the first point, let me say this briefly. I cannot think, I cannot think of a more relevant theme for our day than the theme of the word of God as the sword of the spirit. I cannot think of a more relevant theme for our day than to understand what the word of God is in terms of being the sword of the spirit. And I will hope that this I hope that this will become clear by the end of the sermon. So here's the first point, if you're following the outline. The first thing that I want to address this morning is the specific purpose of the analogy. The specific purpose of the analogy. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. Why a sword? Well, let me make a statement that may surprise you a bit, which nonetheless communicates... A truth 
that can often go unnoticed and overlooked. But before I make that statement, allow me to make a few observations about swords in general. To begin with, you don't pick up a sword to get into a tickle fight. Obvious enough, that would be a very fatal mistake. Secondly, at a very fundamental level, when we think of a sword, we think of something sharp. Again, we don't want to tickle with it. It's something sharp. When we think of a sword, we think of something that can cut. When we think of a sword, we think of something that can inflict pain. When we think of a sword, we think of something that can draw significant amounts of blood. With those general observations in mind, here is the specific statement I want to make as we begin. You ready? If you are going to pick up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, you better be ready to do some damage and accept the consequences. If you are going to pick up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, you better be ready to do some damage and accept the consequences. There was a man who understood this very, very well. This man occupied one of the central roles in what has come down as one of the most important movements in the entire history of the church. I am referring, of course, to Martin Luther in his role in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. In his book, Christianity's Dangerous Idea, historian Alistair McGrath explained that Luther's central drive for the Reformation, his central drive for the Reformation was this, the democratization of faith. The democratization of faith. What does that mean? It means this, Luther's main desire in the Reformation was to see the Bible decentralized from the interpretative monopoly of the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, Luther wanted the Bible to be placed in the hands of the people so that they could read and interpret the Bible as they were guided by the Spirit rather than keep the Bible in the hands of the leaders of the church so they could impose biblical meanings and interpretations on everyone else. Luther based his desire on the doctrine known as the priesthood of the believer. This doctrine says that all Christians should have access to the word of God because through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the word of God can be interpreted, understood, and applied by every single person who is a believer without the need for human intervention. Now, even though this does not deny the need for gifted pastors and teachers of the Bible, it does deny that pastors and teachers have the monopoly when it comes to biblical interpretation, which is a very critical distinction. Now, suffice it to say that Luther's insistence was not well-received by the religious authorities of his time. And in 1521, Luther was summoned before the ecclesiastical authorities and was asked to do what? To recant his views, to take his words back. Luther 
stood firmly upon his convictions. And we begin to see his strong views about the word of God when he famously said, and many of you know this quote, and I quote, Luther said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. End quote. Not surprisingly, these words created quite the commotion. Here's Luther challenging the religious authority of his time, the Roman Catholic Church. But before any punishment could be inflicted upon Luther for challenging the ecclesiastical powers, he was, quote unquote, kidnapped. Have you read the story, right? He was kidnapped by a prince named Frederick the Wise or Frederick the Third who was friendly to the Reformation. Frederick, quote unquote, kidnapped Luther to protect him from the religious powers and their fury. So the kidnappers took Luther to a castle named Wartburg, not Whataburger, Wartburg, (laughs) where he was held in captivity for nine months, nine months. And here comes a point in the story that is very relevant to our discussion this morning as we think of the word of God as the sword of the spirit for spiritual battle against Satan. During his time of captivity in this castle and being consistent with his own desire to see the Bible as a book for all peoples, Luther started his landmark translation of the New Testament into the German language. During his time of captivity at this castle, he started his landmark translation of the New Testament into the German language. And of course, it was the 16th century. So he used ink and quill. Ink and quill. Luther had an ink quill next to him at all times because he was working on this translation. One day, Luther made the statement that, quote, he had driven the devil away with ink, end quote. He had driven the devil away with ink, end quote. Over time, those words developed into a legend. Many of you have heard the legend, maybe. The legend was this. As Luther was translating the New Testament into the German language, suddenly the devil showed up in his little room in the castle to harass him. Luther's response was to take the inkwell and throw it at Satan. And so he left a mark on the wall. And by the way, believe it or not, I heard that story told to me in seminary as though it was true. That is not what Martin Luther communicated, however, with those words. As Alistair McGrath makes clear in his book, when Luther said that he had driven the devil away with ink, he was not talking about a supernatural encounter with Satan. Rather, he was referring to his work of Bible translation into German using ink. Why would Luther say that? Luther had a conviction. Luther had a conviction. You see, Luther understood 
the word of God to be the sword of the spirit because it pierces into the kingdom of darkness. Luther understood the word of God to be the only weapon strong enough to drive Satan away along with his evil schemes. Luther understood that the world did not need his cleverness, but that the world was desperate for the word of God in plain language. My brothers and sisters, what you hold in your hands is a treasure. Is a treasure. And one of the greatest evidences that there is remaining sin in our lives is that we don't care enough about it. In short, Luther knew this. If you can unleash the word of God into the world, then you can pierce into the schemes of Satan. But this can only be done through ink and paper, which are the instruments through which the word of God goes forth. Brothers and sisters, let me see if I can apply this to our our current circumstances by making the following assertion. I am convinced that the role of the Bible has not and will not changed. What will not change. Therefore, in a very real sense, every Bible lesson, every Sunday school class, and every sermon should be seen as means by which the word of God is unleashed into the world so that it can do damage to the kingdom of darkness. Every time the Bible is taught, we are, as it were, raising the sword of the spirit and cutting into the darkness with the powerful light of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible still is the sword of the spirit. And brothers and sisters, we have no other weapon. No other weapon. The question is, are we willing? Are you willing? As the world around you is changing, are you and I willing to lift up the sword and do some damage? And live with the consequences. Consider this. What would have happened? What would have happened if Luther had been a compromiser? Who was more concerned about the preservation of his earthly comfort than about the spread of biblical truth? Where would you be? Where would I be? Sobering question indeed. Listen, my friends. The only way for true Christianity to survive from one generation to the next is by letting the word of God pierce into our darkness and courageously live according to what it says. And I think we could all use a little bit of Luther in us. I think we could all use a little bit of Luther in us. Now, let me be a little more specific. I want to clarify what I mean when I talk about piercing the darkness with the word of God. I have three things in mind. I have, first of all, the remaining corruption in the believer, the blinding darkness in the unbeliever, and the evil work of Satan in the world and the church. Let me begin with the first one. The word of God is a sword because it can pierce into the remaining corruption in the believer. The word of God is the sword or the knife that performs ongoing spiritual surgery within our souls. The sword of the spirit cuts away the remaining corruption in us believers. This is the work of the word of God. Consider what Paul told the Thessalonians concerning the power of the word of God. This is what he says. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, 
but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers, which is at work in you believers. Brothers and sisters, may I remind you that when it comes to walking in obedience to God, nothing, nothing in this world can replace the power of the word of God. Nothing, nothing. You need to store it through memorization, internalize it through meditation, obey it through application, and trust it through faith. Trust what? Trust that this word is at work in you, believers. You see, this is the missing ingredient in a lot of our Bible reading and study. We must memorize, meditate, and obey all in faith, in faith, knowing that the word is active within, cutting away our anxieties, our depressions, our hopelessness, our lusts, and our despairs is the only way that it can be cut away. Now, second, second, the word of God is a sword because it can pierce into the blinding darkness in the unbeliever. As you know, we do mission trips to Guatemala. In one of my flights to Guatemala, I sat next to a young lady. She was a Mormon. She was a Mormon. That was an interesting conversation. I started a conversation with the hope of getting to the gospel. Soon, she started telling me about the importance of trying to be a good person. And her, in her mind, religion was all about good works and moral uprightness. And I remember that during that conversation, I felt like I was running out of words. She was very sharp. So I remember I was sitting next to her and I prayed. I prayed. I asked the Lord to guide me so that I could use his word effectively to pierce through her self-righteousness. In that very moment, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector came to mind. So I said to her, do you mind if I read to you a Bible story? And she said, of course, I, I love the Bible. I said, okay. So I opened the Bible to Luke 18, and I started reading in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. At that point, I stopped reading and I asked her, which of, which of these men represents you? And she thought for a brief moment and she said, well, I, I would have to say the Pharisee. And I said, okay, well, then please keep listening to the story. So I kept reading. Here's how Jesus concluded the story. I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, meaning the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then I said to her, do you realize that based on your own answer and how you see yourself, the word of God condemns you? not me. I just read you the word of God. Do you realize that based on your own answer and how you see yourself, the word of God condemns you? She had nothing to say. After a few awkward moments, 
And just to break the silence, she finally admitted, I had never read that story. And I said, please read it again when you are able and think of what you just told me. Now, I have no way of knowing what happened to her. I probably will never see her again. But I know that on that day, the sword of the spirit pierced into the darkness of her self-righteousness, which reminds me of the following truth. The best way to keep a person in darkness is by letting them get comfortable in lies that are soothing to their innate pride rather than piercing it with the truth. And this is what false religions do. They hate the sword of God because it wounds their religious pride. So they would rather come up with their own books, such as the Book of Mormon, or the Watchtower magazine. Thankfully, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and it can penetrate even the deepest self-righteousness found in the human heart. And third, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit because it can pierce into the evil work of Satan in the world and the church. What do I mean by this? Well, consider the following. One of Satan's main schemes is to mix the world with the church. To mix the world with the church. He wants to fill the church with goats so that they are mixed in with the sheep, which is a very evil and effective strategy. Here's what Ian Murray Say, says about this, and I quote, listen to this. When churches treat as believers those whose lives show no evidence of saving dependence on Christ, it serves Satan's purposes. While the church cannot infallibly discern the regenerate, she can and must recognize belief and conduct, which is plainly incompatible with scripture. Anything less is surely contrary to the New Testament, end quote. That's how the sword of God penetrates. It divides between the goats and the sheep. Now, here's the second main question for us this morning. How can the word of God pierce through all this darkness? Well, now it's time to consider the supreme wielder of the sword. The supreme wielder of the sword. Paul tells us unmistakably that the sword is of the spirit. In what sense is the word of God, the sword of the spirit? Well, there are three specific ways in which we need to understand this. The relationship between the spirit and the word of God is of extreme importance. In fact, if we miss it, we won't be able to wield the sword. Here's what this means. The word is the sword of the spirit because number one, he brought it into being, meaning he is the author. The spirit is the author. The book you hold in your hands is the product of the spirit's work through human agency. So in a sense, the Bible is a human book since it was written for humans in human language and all within our own finite capacities. But this book is divine in its origin. It is the word of the spirit. Everything the Apostle Paul said, everything the Apostle Peter said, everything the Apostle John said, everything in the gospel and everything in the Old Testament from beginning to end is the word of the spirit. This is the testimony of the word about itself. Consider the words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Spirit. Thus, the Bible is the sword of the Spirit in the first place because he is its author. Secondly, the word is the sword of the Spirit because he provides its meaning. He provides its meaning. He is the interpreter. He is the interpreter. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He guides us into all truth, as the Lord Jesus said in the Gospel of John. You cannot understand the Bible apart from the illuminating work of the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of our Lord. If he is the author, then only he can provide its meaning and interpretation. Therefore, we understand from this that all major cults and heresies are the result of people seeking to study the scriptures who are nonetheless void of the presence of the Spirit. They try to handle the sword of the spirit without the help of the spirit. And so they end up piercing themselves with false doctrine that leads to hell. What are the implications? We'll get there soon. Number three, the word is the sword of the spirit because he causes it to succeed. He is the effector. Whenever and wherever the word of God is honored and unleashed, you can know for certain that the spirit of God is at work. And how does the spirit work primarily? I believe the primary work of the Holy Spirit is explained to us in John chapter 16, verse 8. This might just be the key text regarding the ministry of the spirit in the world. So if you've ever wondered what the spirit of the Lord is doing, even now as we speak, here is your answer. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, our Lord Jesus said, when he comes, meaning the spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The spirit's primary role in the world is to convict people of sin. Then of all the people in the world, Christians, meaning those who are indwelt by the spirit should welcome conviction of sin of all the people we should welcome conviction of sin do you welcome conviction of sin in your life when you are convicted of sin do you give thanks and seek refuge and peace at the cross of jesus or do you resist it beware my friends how you respond to conviction of sin reveals the true condition of your heart but how does the spirit do this how does the spirit convict the world of sin through his word. This is the work of spiritual piercing through the message preached. The classic example is when Peter preached at Pentecost as recorded in the book of Acts chapter two, Peter preached from prophet Joel and the Psalms. Consequently, those listening to Peter's sermon, the Bible says were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Isn't that the work of a sword? Only the sword of the spirit, the word of God can cut through a sinner's heart to bring about conviction of sin, repentance, and faith in Christ. The spirit cuts with his sword. In this regard, Geoffrey, Jeffrey Thomas, he's a Baptist preacher. He said this, and I quote, the mark of the Holy Spirit at work in a congregation is not how many people worship at a church or the length of its meetings or the number of programs it offers. Rather, what counts most 
is a congregation's conviction of its unworthiness, end quote. I completely agree. But let me clarify something. The conviction of unworthiness to which the preacher is referring is not for the sake of developing a false sense of humility. Here's what I think he means. When the spirit of God is truly at work in us through his word, there will be a growing sense of unworthiness because as the spirit cuts away remaining sin in us through his word and shows us our unworthiness, he simultaneously heals the cut also through his word by showing us Christ's worthiness. Thus, consider this, conviction of sin leading to increasing faith in Christ is the ongoing dynamic of the Christian life. You can never get out of that dynamic. Always convicted of sin, which leads to further faith in Christ. So what happened that day on the flight to Guatemala? As I read the word of God to that young Mormon lady was the spirit's sword. He was cutting. But this leads us to a question, doesn't it? If the spirit is the author of the word, the interpreter of the word, and the effector of the word, how come so many people remain in their sin and never repent? Does the spirit ever fail in using his sword effectively? Well, of course not. The spirit never fails. When the spirit sends his word out into the world through human proclamation, his purpose is always accomplished. Even when a person remains unconverted and in unbelief. You see, at times, the spirit cuts with his word deep into the human heart in order to bring about repentance and faith in Christ. At other times, however, the spirit will send his word into the world and cut through the human heart in order to further condemn. In order to further condemn. This is why the spirit not only convicts the world of sin, but also of judgment. So let me try to make this personal. Let's personalize what I just said. If you or anyone else for that matter, show up every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you hear the message preached, you listen, but you also remain indifferent, unrepentant, and in unbelief, I can guarantee you, you are not winning the battle against the spirit. He never loses. In fact, I must warn you, when the word of the spirit, meaning this word you hold in your hands, goes out, the spirit will always accomplish the purpose for which it was sent, according to prophet Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. Whether for salvation or further condemnation, in any case, the spirit's sword always cuts as he intended it. This leads us to our final consideration, the practical calls to action. The practical calls to action. I mentioned this world, this word last Sunday. The first one is this epistemological clarity. Epistemological clarity. I mentioned this last Sunday and I saw the need to bring it up again. Much of our spiritual battle 
is fought in the mind, in the realm of knowledge. And the only way to remain standing is by bringing our thoughts into conformity to God's word. In other words, you cannot pick up the sword of the spirit if you lack clarity as to its power, veracity, and authority over your life. If I can put it in practical terms, here's what I mean. In the battle against Satan, please listen to this. This is utterly important. In our battle against Satan, our temptation often is to go inward, to go inward, to look inside and allow our feelings and our perceptions to speak to us. This is what I call unfettered thinking, meaning thinking that is not tethered to the objective truth of scripture by the rope of faith. This is a critical sin of the mind in his religious affections. Jonathan Edwards quoted from Anthony Burgess, who said this, he said that one of Satan's main schemes is to get people to leave the scriptures and to give themselves entirely to what they feel and perceive within them. This is one of Satan's main schemes. He wants you to leave the scriptures and to give yourself entirely to what you perceive and feel within you. Therefore, by epistemological clarity, I mean this. Don't ever abandon your conviction that this book is true. And the only certain, what does the catechism say? The only certain rule of faith and obedience. You have nothing else. This is it. Number two, this is a call to scriptural confidence, scriptural confidence. There's a wonderful example in second Samuel chapter 23. We read about the mighty man of David. One of them was Eliezer of whom the Bible says that as he fought against the Philistines, his hand clung to the sword, his hand clung to the sword and the Lord brought about great victory that day. I believe this man is an example for us as he's, as his hand clung to the sword. So too, our faith needs to cling to the word. There is no other way to victory. My brothers and sisters, there is no other way. Let us be clear at this point. When Christians fail in their battle against Satan and evil, it is not because there's a problem with the sword of the spirit. The word of God is never dull. The Bible is sharp. Always. But at times we lose our confidence in it and we desperately go to other sources. Friends, let me remind you, it is okay to read other books to seek wisdom, but do not let the hand of faith ever cling to anything other than the sword of the spirit, the perfect word of God. This is what you need. Number three, theological courage. I also mentioned this last week, theological courage. Consider the following Satan once to silence the truth. Guess what we need to do? Speak up. Satan wants to discredit the truth. Therefore we need to live in integrity. So by theological courage, I mean then not only the courage to believe these things in our minds, but also the courage to speak and live accordingly. We can't wield the sword of the spirit. If we hide it due to shame 
or discredited due to sin. And finally, finally, numerological dependence. This is just another way of saying praying at all times in the spirit. Numa is the word for spirit. Whose sword is it? It is the sword of the spirit. Therefore, without being filled with the spirit through ongoing prayer, you cannot wield the sword properly. Once again, let me point out this beautiful paradox, which the apostle Paul brings to our attention in our spiritual battle against the devil. We are called to be strong and to stand, right? Be strong and stand yet. We cannot be strong without recognizing weakness and we cannot stand without falling upon our knees. This is the beautiful paradox of the Christian life. We need to learn dependence on the spirit through incessant prayer, which will be the theme for our next meeting next Sunday. Let me leave you with a hymn composed by a man named Joseph Hart. It is a hymn about the word of God, the scriptures. This is what he wrote in this wonderful, wonderful hymn that reads like a poem. And I quote, say Christian, would you thrive in the knowledge of the Lord against no scripture ever strive, but tremble at his word, revere the sacred page to injure any part betrays with blind and feeble rage a heart and haughty heart. If aught their dark appear, bewail your want of sight. No imperfection can be there for all God's words are right. The scriptures and the Lord bear one tremendous name. The written and the incarnate word in all things are the same for Jesus is the truth as well as life and way. The two edged sword that's in his mouth shall all proud reasoners slay. Why do you call him Lord? And what he says, resist the soul that stumbles at the word offended is at Christ. The thoughts of men are lies. The word of God is true to bow to that is to be wise. Then hear and fear and do. Would you pray with me? Father, would you please forgive us? Because I know that in my own life, at many times, I lack confidence in the power of your word. Sometimes even as a preacher and a teacher of the word, I forget that the power is not in my brain's or in my ability to communicate or in my ability to do ministry, but that the power is in your word. And I know that all of us Christians are tempted to forget, but father, do not let us do so. We ask Lord that you do not let us forget that this book is the sword of the spirit and that is capable and is strong and powerful to penetrate into the darkness 
And so, Lord, we ask as believers that you continue to pierce into the remaining sin within us. Continue, Lord, to cleanse us and to mold us into the image of Christ as we are cut, as the Lord cuts away the remaining sin in us through the word. We pray for unbelievers. We pray, Lord, that you will pierce into the darkness of their hearts, that you will remove the ignorance and allow them to see the glory of Christ as he is revealed to us in scripture. And we pray, Lord, that as a church, we will remain bold, speak the word of truth, lift up the sword of the spirit, speak it up and live accordingly. And these things, Father, we pray in the precious and the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.